Welcome, everybody, to episode 160 of the Metabelas 2 podcast, which features myself, Ben. And David. Um, just uh, I'm just, just on, on the top of the cast, I will just remind our listeners that if there's one thing that the Doctor stands for, it's fighting against fascists mm-hmm. um, and state violence. So yes. all of you who are like, none of you are listening to this podcast, but all of those not my Doctor types out there, um, you know, you're watching the wrong show. Yep. The doctor is pretty anti-fascist when it comes right down to it, whether it be in the form of Daleks, Morocks, Usarians, what have you. Uh, the doctor is going to fight for justice and for freedom in overthrowing oppressors. Exactly. And again, when we are fighting against uh, repression, which which the doctor pretty much does on a regular basis, um, it is v- almost uniformly state repression that the doctor yes. fights against. Uh, yes. He does not stand up for gun rights. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he does not say "Don't tread on me," unless, of course, it's people you agree with treading on you. Mm-hmm. You know. Anyway, all of that nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, to quote Monty Python, now we see the violence inherent in the system. Uh, yes, come and see the violence inherent in the system. And it's not a joke this time. So. It's not a joke. Yeah. It's been an intense, incredible past couple weeks here in the United States. And yes. sometimes in order to recharge, you need to get away from it all. And what better to escape, I guess, into my happy place, which is... Season 12, the hey, first of Tom excellent. Baker's stint as all right. Doctor Who. So let, let, us, let us rewind, David, all the way back to your early teenhood. Yes. This was, this was pretty much the first Doctor Who you saw, right? It was, but it's not the first Doctor Who I remembered. Because I was oh. watching it when it went on KTCA, I think in 81. But it didn't start registering for me until the key to time so seasons 12 through 15 just kind of whooshed by me and i was watching them but it wasn't until my first real memory i think is the pirate planet the Hmm. that uh tunnel that perpetual motion tunnel or whatever they go to to get Hmm. into the bridge the captain's palace that's what stuck in my mind and but then after afterwards but i had been watching it pretty pretty regularly after school and i was into it but it just nothing really stuck until the second time around that i watched and then full fandom just kicked in hmm. and how 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 old would you be when you first saw robot for instance 12, 12. 11 12 okay hmm. yeah so we're a little slower on the uptake in who who land we we, we started in the we, US. We, did you watch this on your own? Did you watch it with family, with friends? Um, I watched it pretty much on my own. This was on, if memory serves, at five o'clock okay. every Monday through Thursday or Monday through Friday. So they showed initially two episodes, Ooh. I think, or maybe even one episode. Maybe there's only one episode a day, okay. and then it was followed a by day. the nightly business report. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Right. So my first taste of Doctor Who was with cliffhangers. And then after one or two runs, maybe two runs of Tom Baker, this is about the time that Davison was coming on the scene, they switched to the omnibus format and it was late at night. And I think I was 13 at the time. So it was a bit of a hassle trying to get my parents to let me stay up to watch it. But I think I persevered. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, screw the man. I'm staying up late. Yep. Yep. Um, interesting. So, uh, so you you'd have powered through mm-hmm. season twelve in about three weeks, then. Yep. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. See, that's one of the things I found so extraordinary when I first started having to spend my time in America. Right. Um, is how like TV the same TV was on every night, mm-hmm. which is I think. Uh, I don't know. I actually I can't speak for other countries, but it's definitely not the case in Britain. No, like TV is different every night, and if you try to show the same show, albeit a different episode of the same show, on consecutive nights, mm-hmm. um, people wouldn't stand for it. Mm. And I found that kind of weirdly weird, actually, right. that every the same time every night there would be the same show. That's very very strange to me. Yeah, no, well, that's syndication in the U.S. for you, and that's what all the second run television was. Mm. And growing up, there was like two or three stations in the Twin Cities that were pretty much just syndication, second-run television. And yeah, you would watch the same show every night at the same time, Monday through Friday. And it would really imprint on people uh, certain shows like Scooby-Doo for the younger set, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days. Right. And then you know yeah. later, uh, in like 90s, it would have been like Cheers that would have been repeated. And then once uh, Seinfeld had its run, then Seinfeld would be repeated Monday to Friday. MASH was on continuously. Star Trek every night. Star Trek so, every night. Good Lord. Yeah. yeah. yeah I mean, even, even shows like Scooby-Doo were on once a week. Really? Um, and I was a big fan of Scooby-Doo. I loved Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was like, it's Tuesday. I must watch Scooby-Doo. Mm-hmm. And then the, the next day it would be some other show. Huh. So, um, yeah, which in some ways may account for the, uh, what's the word? Uh, the the What I think is probably the greater diversity and greater output of, you know, television from the UK as matched against its population, mm-hmm. as matched against the United States. I mean, you know, we 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 produced a lot of TV, mm-hmm. a lot of it, a lot of which, of course, we threw away by mistake. Um, <laughs> I, well, so much of U.S. television has been either forgotten or discarded or never re- yeah. recorded. Well, I suppose, I mean, you, you guys had a lot more stations. So, I mean, we, we actually, it would be interesting to try and compare. I, not that interesting because I'm not going to do it. Um <laughs> Like, you know, the the level of TV output mm-hmm. over particular decades. So, I mean, for, so for this season, um, series, whatever you want to call it, let's call it a series of, of robots, uh, Ark in Space, uh, um, Sontaran Experiment, and Genesis of the Daleks, and Revenge of the Cyber People. Um, there are cyber women, remember now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Um, took several months. Mm-hmm. Three months or so to get through. Yeah, yeah. And you know that was the cliffhanger. Like every the end of every Saturday episode, and they were right. always they were broadcast Saturday. It's like I've got to wait a week now. Yeah. Um, until it's on again, and then I'll find out what happens. And of course, again, as I think we've said before on the podcast, it was never repeated either. Right. So if you missed, you know, an episode, too bad. Yeah, you'd pick it up in a Target novelization. That's how you'd fill your gap. Yeah, and sometimes they do, uh, certainly in the 70s, they do kind of Christmas omnibus editions. And again, I think I've talked before, my, actually my earliest full-form memory of watching Doctor Who was the omnibus edition of The Sea Devils, which I think was Christmas mm-hmm. uh, 1973 or something, 73, 74, something like that. Yeah. Um, so, um, 
Yeah, you know, yeah. So it's it's yeah. You didn't get to see this stuff. Yeah, I think it's really peculiar of British television that they wouldn't have summer uh, like a summer of repeats. Like you would have Doctor Who on in the spring, and then right before leading into like a new lineup of Doctor Who in the fall. Why wouldn't you just repeat the previous series? It seems so wasteful that you put all this money into just twenty four minutes of television and never have it being seen again. Well, I think this is this is coefficient of a couple of things. One of which is, I think, is the TV license. So basically, we all pay for TV. Mm-hmm. If you own a television set, you pay a TV license, and that right. TV license pays for the BBC. Um, again, repeats were very much a thing that the general public hated. It's like, okay, we've paid for this stuff. Mm-hmm. Don't show us something we've already seen. Right. Um, we want something new. We want something mm-hmm. new every night. And don't show us any of this American junk. Make your, you know, we we paid for it. We want right. new stuff. I think the other thing is, of course, you remember about summers in the UK are a lot shorter than they are in the United States. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the school year runs until mid to late June, and you know the summer holidays are you know six maximum maximum eight weeks. Um, off in the summer. So, you know, if you think this kind of endless long summers that kids mm-hmm. get in the United States doesn't happen in the UK. Right. Um, you, you're at school all the way to the end of June. And you um, start up again in August, September? And then you start up again at end of August, beginning of September. Mm-hmm. And it is, you know, it's one way that you kind of mark the beats of the year, at least certainly I remember, is that, you know, you went back to school, Doctor Who started again. Yeah. Um, and that's how you could remember that you were supposed to be at school. Um, because Doctor <laughs> Who, and it was like, like, oh, well, I have to be at school. That mm-hmm. kind of sucks. But, you know, hooray, Doctor Who's back on again. Um, one of my horrors of being a young lad in the 1970s is that, um, uh, of course, the memory cheats is used. I'm just looking at the Wikipedia page for... Um, uh, for season twelve, um, that actually started. That actually started at the end of September. I was at the end of December, nineteen seventy-four. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe I'm wrong. But anyway, I mean, the, I can certainly remember because I went to a private school, um, which accounts for my excellent education and elocution. <laughs> so we started slightly later than the kids who went to state schools. Right. So we were often often on vacation at the end of the summer. Um, and I can certainly remember pleading with my parents to go and find a television set in Wales so that I could watch the first episode of um, the Key to Time season uh-huh. because we were stuck in the middle of Wales and we didn't have a TV set in the place that we were staying. So we had to go down into the village and uh, find someone with a black and white TV set. And and therefore, I was able to watch the first episode of... Um, the Reboss operation, which otherwise I wouldn't have been able to do. So yeah, those, those, it's, it was a, it's the kind of rhythm of the year was sort of built a little bit around Doctor Who. Well, it's interesting that Tom Baker's first episode in the UK was broadcast on the twenty eighth of December, nineteen seventy four, in in Minnesota in St. Paul. The first episode of Tom Baker also began on the twenty eighth of December, but just. Uh, seven years later in 1981. So we were, we were following on almost precisely on on the start of Tom Baker, but you look at robot now, or you look at uh, some of the location doctor who from the seventies and it looks pretty dated. It, it, you can tell this was made in the seventies, but when you saw it in 1981, this was only television by from the start at the at at its oldest with Tom Baker this is only 7 years old 
six years old television. And it didn't seem dated. It seemed pretty contemporary to the kids I knew who were watching it after school. And it fed right in, and I've said this before, but it fed right into that itch that got <laughs> that infection, that Star Wars sci-fi infection. It was, it was sci-fi, even though it was earthbound stories like Robot, it still was the very next episode, you're in a space station. And so it, it hooks right in into that sci-fi itch that a lot of kids got in the late 70s with seven, in, in 77 with Star Wars. And right. for a kid, and maybe I wasn't too in tune with special effects, but it just fit right in to this is same thing as Star Wars. Star Wars is not something that you saw a lot of. Television was something I saw a lot of. A movie was like maybe more like television in the UK. You you only got one movie and then you only saw it once. And right, right. It would be really unusual. Star Wars was kind of the exception, but I only ever saw Star Wars in a theater once. And yeah. so everything was based off of the memories and then hear folklore of, of other kids who either have Star Wars cards or had seen it a couple times and they would fill in the details. And so it's this, this is this remembering game of seeing this movie once, but with, with Dr. Who it was on regularly and the cliffhanger from Friday night to Monday was excruciating because like you would, you would see all of robot that first week, but then episode one of the Ark in Space, then you'd have to wait all weekend. And I know boo-hoo, but you'd have to wait right. to see how that would pick up. So, and there was a, there'd be like a nice, nice break. You'd get the three episodes of uh, parts two and two through four of Ark in Space and Santarn Experiment. And then you'd get five episodes of Genesis that third week, but then you'd have to wait again <laughs> to see how it all ties up over the weekend. So you had the daily cliffhanger, but then you also had the weekend cliffhanger. So it was it, it was kind of uh, it, it was kind of a, a mix of both worlds, and it was really uh, strange then seeing this all in omnibus format when they switched over to right uh, Saturday or Friday nights or Saturday nights, and they'd show it all at once because something's lost. When oh yeah, you lose the cliffhanger. Yeah, yeah. I mean, was there any? I mean, you was there any other sci-fi TV that you would watch in the early eighties? Uh, it would be Star Trek. Would be the only other thing that I watch uh, semi-regularly, and usually in the kitchen on a little thirteen-inch black and white television while my mom was right. cooking dinner or something. I would pop how, it on. How about the hated Buck Rogers? Never got into it. Good. Never really okay. got into it. Never really got into Battlestar Galactica because okay. my family was all into if if Doctor Who or Doctor Who originally appeared in the states on commercial television with, and it didn't wasn't successful. If it had not appeared on KTCA, I doubt I would have seen it. If it wasn't on public television, I doubt my parents would have said, "Yeah, go ahead and watch it." Interesting. So your your parents had the similar kind of snobbery. Not snobbery is the wrong word, um, but you know there was a hierarchy of television. In right. the UK, where you know my parents were very, very loath to let me watch um, commercial TV, which is i.e. television ITV. that had commercials in it, mm -hmm. um, which is where you know the hated Buck Rogers um, was programmed against Doctor Who. And of course, all right-thinking Englishmen um, watched Doctor <laughs> Who instead of Buck Rogers. But um, yeah, I mean, I you know my my really my kind of first Who season was season eleven. 
Right. Um, apart from the kind of, you know, uh, the kind of hangover from season nine. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. season 10, a big pardon, from season 10. And I think, again, we I think we discussed on the last cast, you know, how I immediately took to Tom Baker. I can't actually remember any resistance in my young mind switching from John Pertwee to Tom Baker. Right. Um, he immediately was someone that I wanted to watch. And it really helped. And again, I think we covered this last week. It really helped that they didn't do all that kind of nurking around that we now have to do about regeneration that, you know, mm-hmm. John Nathan Turner started. You know, we went bang straight from, okay, here's the new guy and here's the new threat and he's got to solve it. And mm-hmm. we, we, the way we're going to do it is we're going to have all the people that you're used to are going to hang around for a bit um, before they leap off into deep space. And that yeah. just really sold it, basically. Mm-hmm. You want a story as a kid. You don't want all this angst, all this uh, ennui <laughs> of regeneration. You want to just get into it. You want the monsters. You want the giant robot. You want the That's tanks. Right. You want yeah. unit squaddies running around. You want some action and excitement. You don't want, you know... <laughs> People moping around in the zero (laughs) room or whatever the hell that is. Am I a good man or all this stuff? Of course you're a good man. You're the doctor. (laughs) Yeah, you're the doctor. Come on, get on. Like, fight fight some monsters, damn it. Right, right, right. So it's, uh, it's, I can see how it was refreshing. I I went back and looked at Planet of the Spiders, which was the first Target novel I read. Hmm. And I, my... My son was asking me, did you know it was John Pertwee at the time when you read it? And I went through and I looked for descriptions or anything. And with Sarah and the brigadier there and coming in from Tom Baker, I think I just glanced over the white hair and the velvet jacket and all that stuff at the beginning. Terrence Stick was always really economical with his descriptions. Ian Martyr was always more rich and generous with describing things. And I didn't pick up until later that that was a John Pertwee story. Interesting, really. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, they're all there. I mean, it could be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I've not read The Planet of the Spiders for, you know, decades. Right. Presumably, there's, is, there, is there a generation covered at the end of Planet of the Spiders? Yeah, I have it right here. I'll, I'll just read it. Oh, you just have, <laughs> I just to have it right have there. Because I was looking at it. Uh, so this is how it ends. I mean, we have Choji, and this is very brief. Now, wait a minute, said the brigadier firmly. His voice tailed off as he realized he was addressing empty space. Brigadier, look, said Sarah. It's starting. A golden glow was appearing round the doctor's body. Even as they watched, the features began to blur and change. Well, bless my soul, said the brigadier. Here we go again. It's it, That's how it ends. And it's sort of like, okay. Right, 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 right. <laughs> there's, no, you know, it, there's not a big, long explanation that he's dying changing and changing into another man or anything like that and it's just good old terrence yeah it's just uh <laughs> it's just and and then the story begins with uh you know joe joe on the amazon uh and then mike yates steering his car into the yeah. um or uh with lupton you know focusing on mike yates's car and it right. really I didn't know who Mike Yates was. I think that was my my only confusion because because the brigadier and the description in the novel at the beginning was elegant as always in a ruffled shirt and velvet smoking jacket. The doctor is leaning forward with evident enjoyment, and that's that's your description of the doctor. And it's sort of like okay, well, I've seen the doctor in you know Sherlock Holmes get up 
in town to Wang Chang. I guess he's out night yeah, out in town in a velvet nice. smoking jacket. I can yep. go off that. So in in the mind's eye, when I read that, you know, probably 12 years old, uh, that was Tom Baker. So yeah. it was yeah. interesting. Um, so, yeah, so Robot for me was awesome. I mean, you know, it had, it had tanks and, you know, evil and a big robot um, mm-hmm. and, you know, sneaking into things. I mean, again, I've said before, and, you know, no doubt I'll probably say it again at some point, <laughs> uh, um, but I'm going to say it right now, too. One of the things that I really understood or really kind of worked for me with Doctor Who, and especially the the um, the Tom Baker-Sarah Jane pairing, right. is that this idea of kind of playing around and kind of sneaking around and, you know, being in a wood and mm-hmm. jumping down into a quarry and, like, trying to escape from things... I mean, those are all the games that I played when I was a kid with my sister and with my friends. Right. And I really can't remember now whether we played those games because of Doctor Who or whether Doctor Who meant so much to me because those were the games that we played. And I think it's probably the same thing. I mean, I'm lucky in that I lived in the home counties. So basically I lived in all the places that (laughs) Doctor Who was being filmed. You know, in the in a similar way that I didn't live in, you know, Southern California. So right. whenever Star Trek bothered to do any kind of location filming, which was very seldom, Rare. Um, yeah. I couldn't really relate to whatever crappy mm-hmm. bit of Southern California desert they were using. But you know, the woods and the quarries and the roads and the houses and the people that the Doctor interacted with with his companions, especially when he was on Earth, right. was what I interacted with. And even when the Doctor was on an alien planet, like. Scaro or um, you know Earth in the far future for the Sontaran experiment um, or Wookiee Hole um, for Revenge of the Cybermen those are all places that I knew so mm-hmm. you know the Doctor having adventures in all of those places was the same adventures that I had in those places mm-hmm. as well. That's one of the things that really stood out for me uh, of Doctor Who compared to Star Trek was all the location work. And it made it seem more like Star Wars to me because everything or almost everything, especially in season 12, was on location. All but the Ark in Space had some location work with it. You have the BBC recording barracks or wherever that they did for Robot. Right. You know, Dartmoor for Santaran Experiment and then a quarry for... Uh, Genesis and then Wookie Hole for Revenge, it all seemed to have this bigger presence than you can do um, for the most part on a Hollywood backlot or in a Hollywood soundstage. And even then when you go into like, you know, nipping into season 13 where you look at Planet of Evil, the jungle is so much more impressive than a Star Trek jungle. Any it, Star it, Trek it, jungle. Yeah. yeah. The look, the theatrical production values and i think it's a i attribute it to the strong tradition of theater in the uk but the the set designs and the location filming really help sell this and make up for maybe any kind of deficiencies in uh in in story that might have been there it looked very star wars to me it looked like it was location it looked big budget to me as a kid coming off star wars was that because and this is something i don't think i've asked you before was that because so i mean something like dartmoor um which is you know dartmoor yeah it's everyone knows what dartmoor looks like 
Um, uh, you know, now that I've lived in the United States, um, mm -hmm. and particularly in Minnesota for quite some time, I realized that, you know, there aren't that many Dartmoors in Minnesota and there's certainly none near, um, St. Paul. I mean, did, <laughs> did, did something like the Sontaran experiment read to you as an authentically alien planet because that's a place that you'd never been before? Whereas for me, you know, you know, the Sontaran experiment read as like, oh yeah, they, they, they're on Dartmoor for some reason. It was as alien to me as Tunisia was as Tatooine. It, wow. it looked, it looked otherworldly. It's I had not seen a landscape like that before, other than in Doctor Who. Wow. Now, you know, subsequently seen it, you know, Sherlock Holmes, Hounds of the Baskerville, et cetera, et cetera. But that was my first exposure to Dartmoor, and yeah, it did seem otherworldly. So, 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 so. I mean, again, if we we, we then rewind back to robot, I mean, what did mm -hmm. you think about wandering around the home counties chasing a robot? Did that seem kind of weird and otherworldly, or no? It just seemed like this is. Uh, well, it seemed. It seemed exotic because it was Britain. Right. It it, it seemed kind of like a nice place to live. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> yeah, it is a nice place to live. You're right. Everything is everything is kind of green. It is. And and in the summers in the in Minnesota, or well, at least the summers in Colorado and in Oregon, they get very dry and very yellow. But everything is very lush and green, and generally they're pretty lush and green in the summer in Minnesota. Right. And but we were seeing this for the first time in the middle of winter, so it was just lush and green, and it seemed very British. And that didn't seem out of place to me. It seemed what I would expect. It didn't, that didn't register. What really registered for me was the actress who played uh, Hilda Winters, mm. Patricia Maynard. She had the same haircut <laughs> as one of the girls in my, uh, it must've been junior or no, elementary school. Yeah, this was elementary school. I think sixth grade, fifth or sixth grade. And so this girl, I think her name was Paula, looked exactly like Hilda Winters. Uh, scary. Hilda Winters, and yeah, that was kind of kind of freaky. So that, that was, was my earliest memory of robot. That one of the girls I was in elementary school with looked a lot like uh, Miss Winters. Wow. Huh. No one, no one looked like Kettlewell though. No, so. no, that's 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 good. So I mean, this is you know, this is I think it's important to try and you know think about. You know, the reason why these shows kind of mean so much to so many people is, you know, because they were kind of new and unusual and different and the whole kind of bubble wrap controversy, which I know we've we've covered before on the podcast. You know, that mm -hmm. was, a you know, that now we look at the Wirren infection um, on the people of the Ark. I'm forgetting what everyone's name is anyway, whatever. And we think, oh, it's just bubble wrap sprayed green. But... Two things. One of which I don't. We hadn't really. I hadn't really seen bubble wrap at that point in my life. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing that of course happened when I did see bubble wrap. The first thing I did with it is I wrapped my hand in it <laughs> and pretended that I was infected by the Wirren. Uh -huh. So you know, it did double duty. A, it like was an awesome disease infection for someone who's being taken over by an insectoid life form. Mm -hmm. And then B, it allowed me to then play. Um, with my friends being taken over by an insectoid life form. It's yeah. it's doubly awesome. Well, I look at the bubble wrap, and I still don't see it as a bad special effect. To me, it looks no. really creative with it green like that, the way they have it. It looks to me like he's all puscule, um, infected. It looks to me really 
convincing. And maybe that's just when I saw that I could suspend my disbelief, but I really don't remember bubble wrap in the early 1980s either. So I no, think so in no, the, I don't, don't remember it in the, in the, you know, mid 1970s at all. Right. You know, really just one last thought on robot. Right. Before we move on. The thing that really hooked me and the thing that really hooked me on star Wars is the same thing that hooked me with robot is the music and oh. star Wars has John Williams, but Robot was composed by Dudley Simpson, and just that, that is an easy little um, musical hook that kids can memorize, and even if you're play acting in the schoolyard as the robot, all you have to do (laughs) is do that, and you're the robot you're moving with your arms out and that and as long as you're making that noise you're you're the robot and it's very invoking to have those kind of motifs or those kind of musical hooks i think are really really helpful and then simpson also when tom baker kind of goes in he started having this the doctor's theme Mm. which would kind of weave its way throughout uh, tom baker's turn but just even tying in little bits, I think this might have been the first time that Simpson tied in the Doctor Who theme into just the general incidental music of the program. So when he looks at himself, you you hear that, ooh. And looking back, you know, this is not my initial impression, but you know, looking back, it really helps tie in that this is Doctor Who from the very get-go. So when we go leaping into the Arpkin space, I think part one of the Ark in Space is in my top five of all-time favorite episodes of Doctor Who because I really like that trio of Baker, Slayton, and Martyr right. on their own, just exploring with no outside interference, no no guest cast. Yep. They're such a strong trio that they're so engaged gauging to watch and interact and they create this tension and drama and fondness for each other that really works as a TARDIS team dynamic for me absolutely because I mean not a huge amount happens in the first episode of the Ark in Space you know there's there's a laser thing from the ceiling and you know Sarah gets dematerialized and materialized again but it's a great episode because you know, it's full of incident, but nothing really happens. Mm-hmm. Um, which again, I think, is a is an excellent metaphor for children playing. Right. Because you know, when you're playing as a kid, like it's full of incident, but nothing nothing really happens. Right. Um, it's just an endless succession of exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's no plot to a children's game. Um, it's just excitement. Right. And they are, you know, those three individuals. Are, you know, they're perfectly played by the. By the actors, and there is no, you know, they care for each other. There is no, you know, the the female character is not really presented as, you know, weaker than the male characters. It's it's just it's just it's just a great 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 thing to watch, basically. Mm-hmm. And just to quickly rewind to the music piece, I mean, the 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 um, Dudley Simpson's music, it wasn't orchestral, it wasn't electronic. It really didn't sound like any other kind of music that I was hearing on television at that time. And I know Dudley Simpson, you know, composed lots of other pieces of music for sitcoms and, you know, other other kind of dramas. But right. um, 
you know, I can just, I can just, you know, just those, the kind of chamber orchestra that kind of, Ensembles, yeah. You know, just the, just the, you know, the, the, I don't know, was it a bassoon or something? I'm, I'm no good with musical instruments, but you know, just the musical instruments that were used and the, you know, the percussion and mm-hmm. the, the woodwind sounds and the, and it's just, you know, immediately one's like, bam, into something that's super exciting and super different and just kind of thrilling, really. Distinctly Doctor Who. Yeah, and the Metabilis 2 is good friends with Jess Jerkovic, um, Dudley Simpson uh, YouTube project. And, you know, I would just die to get, like, full recreations of those Dudley Simpson soundtracks at some Mm -hmm. point in the future. Um, Because they're just so fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I think it's well within the capability of of, of doing that. It would be wonderful to have them reconstructed. We've we are reanimating or animating missing stories. It'd be nice to restore some of the soundtracks or scores in complete orchestral or ensemble, uh, authentic period, authentic uh, reproductions at some point. Yeah. yeah. Because it definitely is the music of my childhood and I'm sure many, many others. Yeah. Mm. So going back to Arkham Space, that first episode, I really do like episodes when you have the TARDIS team on their own exploring just trying to find out what's going on i'd like the first episode of the wheel in space that way if we go fast forward all the way into the 21st century with smile uh with bill and the doctor exploring i i like them together i like when you can focus on the two or three characters the doctor and one two companions because it does allow for character to be shown and personality to come through, but not when there's a crisis or not when there's uh, something traumatic happening to them. You get to just see what they'd be like ordinarily. And I right. I like that. And it's why me as a kid kind of sees them as friends, my, you know, my television friends, because you get to see them just being normal and acting around each other or caring or share, show their curiosity. You have Sarah's curiosity when a sliding door opens and then she sticks out her tongue at the doctor because he's ignoring her or, uh-huh. or, you know, Harry bumbling around and trying to remember what switch he tossed or just, just the, just the cliffhanger at the end where the Warren husk falls out of the cabinet you know, Harry's unflappable. His reaction is just kind of stand aside and say, blimey, you know, that, that is, that's, that's Harry. He doesn't even jump. It's, it's the camera that jumps for us as kids. So, but it's just, I like the unflappable Harry. I like the doctor who is very, very, very smart and stuff. And I like, I like Sarah's energy and curiosity. And she really is the, in many cases, the uh, the avatar for all young children in that yep. story. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, they are perfect. I mean, it's such a. Oh, this is obviously, you know, for him personally, and particularly for his family and friends. Um, it was a tragedy that Ian Martyr died so young. Yes. Um, but it is also a tragedy for us as well mm-hmm. because we were robbed of more of more of Harry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, obviously he left the show by the time that he died um but you know uh, to have him well you know maybe john nathan turner would have wrecked him i don't know 
but yeah, it's he, that's. I mean, he died before fandom really took off. I yeah. mean, he, I think he. he Oh, was it 81, 82 when he died from yeah, and he was complications from early, diabetes? 86. Was, so fandom was, was pretty in infancy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 42. Ugh, terrible. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are, you know, there are individuals, you know, who died before fandom happened. You know, mm-hmm. Ian Marta. Um, I always think, you know, just Bob be Holmes. so... Yeah, Bob Holmes. You know, if only we'd have the kind of forensic analysis that people are subjected to now to nowadays if only that could have been applied to bob um you know i'm sure he would have hated it in some manner but mm-hmm. um it would have been so much fun to have him at conventions and you know be find out a little bit more of what made him tick basically mm-hmm. yeah. yeah yeah and ian martin was obviously such a great individual you know what one understands a very close friendship with them um, with tom baker and Nick Courtney, you know, they go down the pub, which, well, presumably that's something that Ian Martyr shouldn't have been doing. But right. anyway, whatever. Uh, <laughs> um, what with his diabetes and all that. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a real, real tragedy. Mm-hmm. So did you guys play? I guess you had no bubble wrap accessible. Did you reenact or did you, how did you, I can see how you would do the outdoor ones and quarries and whatnot and woods, but did you? How would you do the spaceships ones? Oh, I mean, there were enough corridors at school that you know one could pretend that that was a corridor of the of the arc. I mean, the whole <laughs> Wirren thing was so you know wonderfully horrific anyway, and you know I was really interested in insects and butterflies and caterpillars and pupation and mm-hmm. insects in general at that age. That that all kind of fed into that basically, um, mm-hmm. in a in a very satisfying manner yeah okay so it just yeah. slotted in nicely it just slotted into my general <laughs> interest in things at that point yeah uh-huh. yeah, yeah. yeah um and then we, i mean with Suntaran experiment i mean we didn't holiday on dartmoor per se but mm-hmm. as i alluded to in my earlier remarks on this podcast we'd spent the majority of our holidays um in wales and you know the mountains of wales are are pretty much the same as Dartmoor. You don't get the tours mm-hmm. that you have on Dartmoor, the big, those big kind of rocky outcrops. Yeah, okay. But the kind of, you know, the bracken and the moss and the the, the general appearance, the kind of grey skies, mm-hmm. uh, just just as as uh, as is on the Sontaran experiment. So that mm-hmm. was one, that was a one that made a lot of sense to me. And especially since, again, that has a very small cast. Mm-hmm. Um, it has very, very sensibly, it has a returning monster um, a returning monster that's very popular, and the whole kind of sadism of um, Steyer appealed to us as well. Because, like, <laughs> God, yeah, this is like, ugh. Yeah. imagine being captured by a creature like that. What would you do? Right. I think the production team had trouble filming this because it was all on location. It was on, on I think, OB video, and it was raining nonstop. Or yeah, it's Dartmoor. It's going to rain all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, if it was sunny, then I don't think it would have worked as well. The fact that it was overcast and rainy, I think, was what sells the location for me. Which, again, is interesting, you see, because to me, that's what doesn't sell the location. Uh, Um, But I think possibly for someone, you know, more used to Minnesota, mm -hmm. we don't really get those kind of gray skies and rain in that similar way. Mm-hmm. may make this more alien to me it's like yeah pouring with rain as usual <laughs> and it's not sunny uh, which mm-hmm. is what is the usual condition of that part of the uk 
Interesting. Yeah. Okay. So that that uh, the little difference in geographic location and viewing really uh, impacts on the way you see it. The other thing I think is interesting uh, growing up, and this is probably commented elsewhere, but there seems to be a lot of quarries in the UK, and there's just quarries are not that accessible or weren't at least to me growing up in the Twin Cities in Minnesota weren't really that known. I didn't really. Quarry wasn't something I associated with anything other than Doctor Who. Interesting, because I think the only quarry that I know of in Minnesota is that one near um, uh, St. Peter. Um, when you, uh, you know, where if you drive to St. Peter, there's like, you know, those stupid people who have that kind of, what is it, Cambria, that's it, <laughs> the, the tile company. Uh-huh. That's the only quarry, the only quarry that I know of in the Twin Cities mm-hmm. um, or in, 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 in southern Minnesota. Um you know, for whatever reason, you know, obviously people lived in Britain for a long time and we've been extracting things from the land for a long time. Britain is rotten, rotten with like, ex, you know, extraction. Where I, again, in the 70s, right basically down the road from my parents' house, they were building a uh, motorway, so what I think you'd call an interstate mm-hmm. here in the United States, uh, from a good proportion of the early 70s. So there was a huge amount of torn up ground and kind of rocks and mud and non-grass, empty, removed spaces. And that's where we used to do all our Doctor Who playing is in the is in the kind of, you know, the earth removal for the interstate construction. Uh Um, But then again, you know, there were there there are quarries all over the place. And, you know, most of some are working quarries like the Hand of Fear, but most are abandoned quarries um, like uh genesis of the dark right. and unlike i mean again i mean it's it's weird again looking at kind of american movies where you have those you know i, I think the most recent one i've seen oh, was it walking dead anyway you know there's the big kind of stone extraction kind of whether you're you're cutting large blocks of stone out of the ground in a kind of italian sort of way there's not that kind of stone extraction certainly in my part of britain in the home counties it's mainly you know it's clay and gravel hmm. is what you're is what you're removing. Um, gravel, obviously, to make concrete and clay to make paper, and those are the kind of those are the kind of extractive spaces that we would play around in. Huh. Uh-huh. You also have more cathedrals too, and a lot of stone buildings and construction for the most part in the U.S. is either going to be steel or timber type construction. There's stone buildings are not as commonplace, especially not in what 21st century as they were in uh, more of a historical construction period yeah 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 i mean yeah i mean i think in general you build things out of what you've got Mm -hmm. um so in in america you know there used to be a lot of wood and there still is quite a lot of wood so you build things out of wood Mm -hmm. in britain you know we chopped down all the trees like thousands of years ago um Mm -hmm. so okay what are are you going to build things out of now it's going to it's it's, it has to be bricks made out of clay or it has to be um, a stone stone made out of bits of stone. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, that's what you have to build stuff mm-hmm. out of. So, yeah, yeah. I have a soft spot in my heart for the Santarin experiment. I know it gets the stick a lot from people, modern viewers, especially going back in season 12. But what, 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 what do modern viewers not like about the, the Santarin experiment? I'm not sure what they don't like about it. It's, it generally pulls fairly weak. It's not a very strong... Strong polling story. I mean, I swear. I mean, I mean, it, it ends weekly. 
because like the Suntorans go, okay, you go like, right, we we just give up now, bye. Yeah, you know, which which is a weakish ending. Um, but the story itself is awesome. God, right. As I said, I think... imagine being captured by aliens like that. There were no aliens like that on Star Trek, um, as far as there I remember. There wasn't potato-headed aliens. Yeah, that would Trek. then yeah. capture you and then torture you because they felt like it. Right. You know, I mean, aliens mm-hmm. on Star Trek always had some kind of, you know, Theodore Sturgeon, sci-fi writer kind of higher purpose. But mm-hmm. Sontarans didn't. The Sontarans were just mean. They were like teachers. <laughs> They would torment you simply because they could. <laughs> that must be uh, going to public school there. There you go. Private school, private whatever school. you call it. Quite possibly, yes, quite possibly. Mm. And then the big one, I guess the big, the, the smart thing, I guess, that Letts did when he kind of set out this, uh, Dixon Letts set out the season 12, is giving Tom Baker such a strong set of stories to launch him and back before Whitaker came on the mm. scene, I was advocating that she would meet the Daleks early on because really it's not until the doctor meets the Daleks that I think it really gets, for the most part, uh, sold that this person is the doctor. And it wasn't until resolution, I think, did the wheel start turning for Whitaker. And definitely by the time Genesis was uh, debuting, in middle of March of 1975, Tom Baker was the man. I mean, he was right. the doctor by then. So it, this just underscores it. Absolutely. So we get the Genesis of the Daleks, and it's epic. It is an epic. It has a feel of a World War II movie with such a large cast and with different locations. And what more than going back and trying to stop the Daleks from being created I yes guess. no it's perfect i mean i i obviously i i was aware of the daleks because um you know we well, had uh, just seen them in death of the daleks too. death death to the daleks um planet of the daleks um i was a huge fan of there were the dalek annuals and the daleks were everyone knew about daleks and everyone knew you know how what a what a massive threat they were and how difficult mm-hmm. they were to overcome and just this idea that you go back as you've just said go back and try and stop them from from being in- invented in the first place was such an amazing kind of, to my young mind, such a kind of mind-blowing sci-fi premise that it was like, wow, yes, you could totally do that if you had a time machine. Um, and of course, you know, I I was, you know, I hadn't seen, you know, this is only, this is, we're already talking about season 12. It's only 12 years since Doctor Who had, had, had even had started. You know, I mean, we're now, um, uh, you know, it's longer now between now and, you know, 2005 than it was between then and 1963. But I mean, I, I had no, obviously, because I wasn't born, I had no memory of the original Doctor Who and the Daleks from 63. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I wasn't bothered by the kind of, you know, continuity problems that that, that Genesis potentially exposes us to. Um, yeah. And it just was, again, it's Terry Nation, you know, it's like threat, peril, escape, Mm-hmm. chase lock up escape peril you know it's just you know every you know every for all six episodes it doesn't drag there's no one bit where you're bored it's perfect for a serial drama where you have the cliffhanger every week you want a little bit of run around you want the perilous escape loop and i think if you look at it in seeing it once a week and did it keep me engaged am i going to come back next week and watch it's a perfect bit of television yeah. where modern viewers in our age of binge watching 
it doesn't work, I think, as effectively if you don't see it over a slower period of time. If you watch it all in two and a half hours, then it does seem a little bit of a runaround. Then things like, oh, well, the the college city is right next He's to the right Thal next city. To the Thal city. <laughs> <You> <laughs> <know>. <laughs> Which is kind of blindingly obvious nowadays. But then right. you're like, no one, you, no, no one cares. No one notices. You, don't, right. you, you, you didn't press pause on the tv and go oh yeah that model they're right next door to each other but that's very world war one where you have trench warfare True. and that's what they were trying i think going for what uh, nation was trying with in the story so everything is uh, kind of scaled down to a tabletop war game level of uh Doctor Who, and you can you can almost imagine Warhammer, you know, twenty thousand right. or forty thousand or whatever miniature games. This is this is tailored for that, and then you have these oddball things like the giant clams in the tunnels, which make no sense, but they're endearing and they're funny and they're fun to to reflect upon i guess yeah and it's you know with with nation he, he and and, I, and also i mean obviously holmes has got some input on this but you know they just they just threw stuff at this to make it exciting and you know right. okay harry has to get through a cave um that's boring <laughs> put a giant clam in there um don't put a exciting. snake don't put a snake or a tiger or some gas or I don't know a vine that grabs you know a giant clam. Why not go mm-hmm. for it? Um, and it's just this kind of level of just ridiculous ambition of um, something like Genesis of the Daleks and other Doctor Who in general. It's like they they were just like okay, fine, right? You let's do a giant clam, right? Okay, well, let's yep. make it out of let's make it out of polystyrene. Let's get someone kind of working it so it like <laughs> grabs onto his leg. <laughs> um, yeah, it's brilliant. And when you look at it in the omnibus, the the special Christmas special version of it, where they cut out the giant clams, it the story feels hollow. It doesn't have the same epicness that it has when you put put in the giant clams. So you need these little bits that aren't central to the plot, but help increase the peril or increase increase the adventure for the story to stand out to add to give it i guess i think i i like to think of it as charisma it gives the story a little bit of charisma that if it was just a 49 50 minute drama of plot it wouldn't have it would be okay yeah okay there's davros he created the daleks the doctor questioned whether he had to write for genocide ultimately it kind of was a stalemate that's not as exciting as a story with giant clams in a tunnel yeah, because I mean, yes, because I mean the the kind of you know moral di- and you know I, I I guess the moral dilemma in Genesis of the Daleks is a reasonably interesting one. It's a pretty mm-hmm. low level moral dilemma, but you know it's nonetheless some kind of dilemma. You know, going back in time to defeat your greatest enemy—that's also pretty cool and interesting. Mm-hmm. But it's it's the incident that makes it so great, um, and it's also an amb- an, an, an ambiguity as well. It's like a lack of kind of black and whiteness, which I think is probably more homes than it is nation you know the fact when you know davros you know there are some scientists who support davros and there are some scientists who are plotting against davros like the scientists are not a monolith right and in in the end you know the kind of gut punch of um of genesis of the daleks is that davros appeals to the daleks for pity 
he wants to be spared. And he then realizes, of course, that, you know, he's the one who programmed them or genetically engineered them to have no pity. And therefore he dies. And he, you know, he dies. And I, right. you know, I don't he know. He should have stayed dead. <laughs> he should have stayed dead. And he dies trying to destroy his own creation um, mm-hmm. because he finally realizes what he has made. Right. And it's so perfect that, um, you know, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm with Russell T. Davis on this one. You know, Genesis of the Daleks is the pivot. And that's the first shot of the time war. Right. Um, and from then on, Doctor Who becomes increasingly timey-wimey and, you know, impossible to categorize. Right. Um, Davros died in that bunker. The fact that he then came back again is because, you know, time started to unravel from that point. Hmm. Um, uh, and, the, you know, the original Davros... And I, this is no... I'm not discounting Terry Malloy, who's an amazing actor as well. And does a great job being being Davros, but that is a different Davros hmm. mm-hmm. from another another timeline, an alternate universe, however you want to, however right. you want to. Um, but my my head canon is that you know Davros dies in the bunker. Yeah, I think that would have been a better <laughs> better end for Davros than at least uh, having him come back in Destiny. But we'll get to Destiny later on. Yeah. Uh, the other bit I think is really strong is Sarah and her adventures off with Severin and then uh, leading the rebellion against the rocket to try the, the escape. I think that Sarah is particularly strong in this story. And here you have a journalist in 1970s who's a Terrence Dick's caricature of a feminist. Mm-hmm. And she's all about attitude in season 11. She knows better. She's very skeptical. And by the time that she hits Genesis, uh, her whole world has been turned upside down. And there's not a lot of space for a journalist An investigative <laughs> in the middle journalist, of the war yes. between the Collins and the Thals. So she leads an insurrection. It's her idea. And she has her weaknesses and she's ter- she, Slayton does an amazing job selling that Sarah is yeah. terrified of heights. She's a, great, she's a great actress. She's a great actor. And it's a horrible I mean it's it's a horrible cliffhanger at the end where she is just dangling um, at, at the end of the Thal's Thal's wrist. You know that, that uh, David Maloney's freeze frame cliffhanger of her yeah. falling is just it's just ugh. I know it's horrible this is this is pretty dramatic stuff especially a I mean the age of people watching Doctor Who I think was much younger in the UK than in the US at least when the initial batch of Tom Bakers because I think most kids start watching Doctor Who were like five or six maybe or even younger yeah I think I was six when I started watching it so this was all uh, pre-teens that were really into I would think uh, 10 11 12 year olds but even for that age group this was compelling this is riveting drama oh God yeah it's amazing drama and it has just enough you know it has just enough thought to it to make it thoughtful mm-hmm. um, but it is mainly just really really exciting action yeah. Yeah. yeah, and there and there just there's tense scenes like with the uh, with the interrogation scene where Sarah and Harry are being uh, under threat of torture if the doctor doesn't spill the beans for Davros of all the Daleks exploits and yeah, I mean they go straight from being tortured by um 
Sontarans to being tortured by um by by Daros. Again, you know, I think it's impossible to overemphasize the importance of like World War Two mm-hmm. in children's imagination, certainly my imagination and children in general in the nineteen seventies in the UK. Um, and you know the idea of the Gestapo right. and the Nazis and the Germans, who are all basically the same thing in our heads. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you were captured by the Germans, that's what the Germans would do to you. Mm-hmm. They would torture you, um, uh, and that's mainly what they would do. I don't think we kind of followed through on like exactly what they were trying to find out. I don't think kind of concentration camps or any other kind of you know the kind of full panoply of Nazi Nazi horribleness was kind of really in our brains, but we knew that the Germans and to some lesser extent the Japanese were you know the enemy, and if they got you, this is what they do. Mm-hmm. Second World War was only what three years or thirty years out from. Uh, yeah, nineteen forty-five. Yeah, it's th- you know it's it's th- seventy-five, thirty years, 30 years so. To 1975, so you know it's the equivalent of um, mom and dad um, remembered it. <laughs> yeah, it's the equivalent. It's the equivalent of you know 1990, right? Um, which I can certainly remember um, at this point in my life. Well, bits um, of it, at least. <laughs> yeah, to us. So yeah, yeah. right. So yeah. It, it was it was fresh in it was fresh in people's mind, and the analogy of the scientific elite and the army and stuff that was uh nazi experimentations that the mutations the genetic experiments that was uh mengele davros was a is a nazi scientist Nider was his right hand man it fit very well within what was thought of uh, german science and research <laughs> of the second world war of with Nider saying we must keep the collard race pure all that stuff fed right into what the nazis were about and doctor who works really well when it riffs off some earth history rather some real stuff rather yeah. than going directly i think Doctor Who, I think, works a little bit better, at least for my taste, when it goes a little bit obliquely, when it's a retelling or a parable or it's inspired by this, but it's not a direct, it's not let's kill Hitler, let's let's kill Davros. I think it works better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, what's what's, again, what's so great and sort of subtle about Genesis of the Daleks is that Nider and Davros, etc., they're going on about how they want to make the colored race purer, and all they do is just make it more and more horrible, mm. um, which is a very, very nice metaphor, and nice, I mean by accurate, kind of a metaphor for what happened in Nazi Germany. You know, we're trying to make the German race better, and all we do is make everything worse mm-hmm. for everybody. Mm-hmm. Let that yeah. be a lesson. <laughs> yes, Nazis, let that be a lesson to you. Yes. Learn from Doctor Who, please. Try to. Thank you. It's yes. a, yeah. We just sit them down and make them watch Doctor Who. That'll 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 learn them. Yeah. Teach them. I don't know. It's yeah. a, it's like uh, people who watch The Handmaid's Tale or 1984 and see it as an instruction manual rather than a tale of <laughs> warning. Rather than a tale of warning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and I, I guess we're fast coming to the end of of our talking time. But we don't want to leave out Revenge of the Cybermen, do we, really? Yeah, which is another fun story. <laughs> it's great. I, I, I don't know why everyone else, uh, Revenge of the Cybermen is no good. I think people say that. I think it's, it's the because, gold. I think it's, it's the because gold. because it comes out of the 1960s when the kind of, you know, the Cybermen was such a strong Troughton presence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now we can see some of those stories. We think, oh, yeah, the Cybermen, even though, you know, their plans were just as mm-hmm. 
shonky in the 1960s as they were here. And the gold thing is brilliant. Um, really? Because, you know, gold is stuff you have around the house. <laughs> and by, by that, I mean... I it's, it's Well, no, no. I mean, your parents have gold wedding rings. You uh, know about okay. gold yeah, as okay. a kid. It's special. You know it's... You know it's super special, you know it's super rare, uh-huh. but it's not like diamonds or like uranium right. or you know something that is like literally unobtainable as a kid. Like gold is available mm-hmm. and quantifiable and observable. And like all of a sudden it's like, yeah, wow, They're, these creatures, they're made of silver and gold is what kills them. Mm-hmm. And then, then there's a whole planet made of gold and it's just, it's gorgeous. Mm-hmm. It's fa- fa- fabulous. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, I love it. And there's a disease and it's, it's horrible. And they're like the stings on their faces. Mm-hmm. And there's little rat things that run around. Yeah. And they're, the, the Cybermats in Revenge of the Cyber are a lot better than the 60s Cybermats. They're a lot more threatening mm-hmm. to my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's caves. And we've all been to Wookiee Hole. So we all know what that cave looks like. So again, you're back to the play stuff. And there's a rocket and a bomb. You get strapped to a bomb and the bomb's going to kill you. It's, you know, what's not to like? Nothing. Again, I have another soft spot in my heart for this story, too. And the thing that I really like about this is the the actor who plays Kelman, Jeremy Wilkins, looked exactly like one of the kids (laughs) I was in school with. It's your high school, basically, uh, Doctor. Yeah, well, uh, this this kid was in... uh, I think in seventh grade, he looked exactly like Kelman, uh, down to he was kind of albino-y, kind of uh, weaselly kind of looking kid. And yeah. unfortunately, he didn't see it, and, and he wasn't into Doctor Who, so he probably never oh, knew about shame. it. But it was always, I could see these people. And um, the the thing I always had trouble with, uh, Revenge of the Cybermen, is understanding the Vogans. And we have the stellar... David Collings, Kevin Stoney are are Vogans, and I still cannot tell the difference between okay, which one's Stoney, which one's Collings. It's the Vogans. They're Vogans. They're Vogans. You don't have to tell the difference. I mean, see, this the, I think this is where fandom starts to like ruin the show. Okay. I mean, I obviously I you know age eight or whatever it was, I had no idea who Kevin Stoney was. I had no idea who David Collins was. Right. Um, and I didn't care that you. That this is like you know the great Kevin Stoney from Invasion, and you know the great David Collings from. Well, I guess he's going to be the first. He's one. going to be in um, Robots of Death. Yeah, coming, but yes, yeah, exactly. The you know who was there, who was then in Robots of Death. All I knew is these were the the stupid, creepy aliens who lived underground mm-hmm. and had like crazy big foreheads, and <laughs> and not only did they live underground, that everything they had was made of gold, right? Which is amazing. Yeah. Because, I mean, as, again, I all I knew about gold is that, you know, it was very, 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 very valuable mm-hmm. and it was hard to get hold of. But not as hard to as good a hold as unobtainium. So. <laughs> unobtainium, yeah. exactly, exactly. I, the other other bit, I, I like the Cybermen. I thought the Cybermen were pretty uh, fun. And I didn't, or, I, maybe not fun, but they, they felt like a credible threat to me. Right. That they had this plan and... They were a little bit wacky, and yeah. <laughs> in that 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 they had these cyber bombs, and then they sent Cybermen down to this gold planet, and they were supposed to be gold was supposed to be lethal to them. But in Wookiee Hole, Cybermen in Wookiee Hole, that was pretty cool to see, and the caves make this story. If it was entirely contained on Nerva Beacon, like Ark was, I don't think it would work quite as well. No, but the no, fact no. that you have 
down on Voga, a moon of Jupiter or a captured moon of Jupiter in these caves, the realism that filming actually in Wookiee Hole puts it back to me in kind of in my you know childhood mind's eye as Star Wars because it's on location, it's dark, it's ominous, it's creepy. You have aliens running around with guns, you have Cybermen. It's very, very sci-fi to me <laughs> for my eyes. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you know, Wookiee Hole's a pretty cool place to go. I can recommend a, a trip to Wookiee Hole next time. Mm -hmm. And if you're able to travel again and find your way to the uk if that ever <laughs> happens again um and they shoot it really well you know i mean there's there's some great camera angles it looks really kind of a pre i mean it's you know it's it does wookie, wookie hold has never looked as good as it looks in revenge of, uh, revenge of the cybermen <laughs> when you visited there do they play up their connection to doctor who uh they used to i mean i've not been there for like 20 years mm -hmm. probably 25 years but certainly mm -hmm. last time i went um yes they do play up that Doctor Who was filmed there. I'm surprised that no one has made a return to Wookiee Hole uh, as a filming location for Doctor Who. It seems like it would have potential. I don't know how big the cave system is there. Maybe they they shot everything that they could there. Well, remember, remember it's Britain, so nothing is as big mm. as it is in the United States. So, no, it's not a very big cave system. Okay. Um, in fact, you might call it a kind of small cave system. Right. Um, I think, isn't there, is, there must be, isn't there an extra on the DVD? Is there a Wookiee hole then and now? There could be. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. It's been, pro, it's yeah. been a while since I've looked at any of the extras on the DVDs. Right. Right, right, right. Probably not since it came out in, yeah, I think it possibly. came out with Silver Nemesis, which <laughs> I guess that's one way to make people buy Silver Nemesis, so. <laughs> that's true that is true yes it was the only way that i would have bought mm -hmm. silver, silver nemesis certainly yeah and since this is my introduction to doctor who i like that we return to nirva beacon in this i like how there's a lot of travel without the tardis in yeah. this story it recaptures kind of this vibe of the 60s where one story flows right into each other so it's one big run of stories yeah big finish can't can't wreck it by dropping a like entire 20 season arc. Well, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could slot yeah, something sure in could. between uh, leaving Scaro and then returning to Nerva Beacon. I'm sure there's probably some way of slotting in. And now that they've uh, cast Sadie Miller as Sarah True. Jane and uh, recast Ian Martin. Well, they've done, I mean, they've just released that, um, was it Master Genesis or Anti Genesis, where uh, the Jacoby Master is drops himself into Genesis of the Daleks and has shenanigans okay do they use any of the i don't know um i i i okay. I, I have let me hang on let me i i actually bought it because it sounded like a really exciting idea for a story for me um uh, i haven't actually listened to it yet but um do you have it on silver disc yeah i do have it on silver disc okay. it's called anti-genesis mm -hmm. uh, and it's kind of it's and it's a retelling a four-part adventure featuring the master's exploits in the time war in the time war there was a crime that not even the daleks would dare consider but the master's more than considered and he's ready to commit. So he goes back to, um, yeah, he goes back to, uh, goes back to Scaro. Oh, yeah. Okay. And joins the, joins the scientific elite. Uh -huh. yeah. So that's just waiting for someone to rotoscope in, uh, Derek Jacobi, probably from, uh, I Claudius somewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> put, put him in some of the scenes. And so it's, it's actually, it's actually kind of, it's four interlocking stories. My favorite title is, is, the Master's Dalek Plan. 
by Alan, <laughs> Alan Barnes. Um, so yeah, no, I, I tend to look, listen to these big finishes. I kind of store them up for like long car journeys. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I've not had any long car journeys recently because there's nowhere to go to. Um, but as yeah. soon as that starts opening up again, I will be listening to this. You have to queue it up. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So with, with Revenge, I think it would yeah. be remiss not to mention that this is the last soundtrack or score from Kari Blyton which Hinchcliffe did not like, yeah. but the uh, bit for the Cybermen, I like the marches and the Vogans, and I don't know. I mean, I'm glad that Hinchcliffe didn't have a falling out of Dudley Simpson, but it would have been nice to have Kari Blyton continue on scoring one or two episodes. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I like Kari Blyton's scores. Um, I know a lot of who so-called fans don't, um, but I think he's great. Yeah, I think he adds a different sound to the mix, and I think that's one of the things that was strong about the classic Doctor Who run is you had, yes, you had the dominant force of Simpson, especially up through the 70s, but you also would have you'd have stock music, you'd have uh, Blyton, you'd have Burgone, you'd have other composers in there that would expand the musical palette or soundscape so it wouldn't feel samey you wouldn't get into the rut of a murray gold or an akinola where things start to sound a little samey with a different composer coming in it was like having different directors you'd have a different take on the way who sounded and it it was fun yeah yeah fun to hear and i like the music from revenge I, i like all the music in season 12 i think it's a good good music good good soundtrack yep Yep, great music. No, I mean, the Doctor's music is just a strong part of its appeal. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very well, very well considered, very well done. Yeah, it's a, for me, it's like locations, soundtrack, plotting. I like the plotting stories. Charismatic team, the, this time team, the season 12 time team. It's such a shame that I think Hinchcliffe didn't find a way to keep Harry along. I would have liked to see him... In in Brain of Morbius, for example, what what would have right. been his role there? Um, Seeds of Doom, you could see him playing a role. You kind of see where Harry. Well, I think we'll talk about when we talk about season thirteen. But I kind of see places where Harry could have slotted in, or Harry could have been in the story. Uh, maybe not as an ongoing cast, but another spin in the TARDIS. I don't think would have been unwarranted at all for Sullivan. No, definitely not. Yep, yep. More mm-hmm. Harry, more Harry, please. Yeah. And uh, any any other final thoughts on season twelve? Ah, uh, no, it's a good season. Yep, highly Classic. recommended. Classic Engaging. Did, did did have you got the Blu-ray set? I do. I I do indeed. Have you have you examined its highways and byways, its quirks and features? Uh, sad to say, it's still in its shrink wrap. I have not ah. had the time. That's the way to keep it valuable. Um, flip it on eBay and make yourself a bit of money. Yeah, then I wouldn't have it. <laughs> that is true. Oh well, never mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's no. Yeah, I do. It's, I it's do fun. have it. It's uh, it's been such a hectic, hectic time, and I I was looking for work at the end of uh, last year, and now I'm kind of <laughs> trying to hang on to my job, so I just haven't had the time. Oh no, I'm, I'm not blaming you. I mean, I've got an entire four stories of big finish. Ah. To- listen to which of course i haven't done mm-hmm. briefly before we yes. before we sign off i just we'll, we'll talk about terror of the zygons in season 13 because that's where it aired but 
it really is the bookend to season 12 and if it wasn't held over to open up season 13 and was the uh, end of season 12 season 12 i think would be hands down my favorite season it, the harry sullivan season i really like that run from robot to terror of the zygons to me that's just uh probably the happiest place in doctor who for me and the stories aren't quite the hinchcliffe horror it's a strange blend of let's and uh hinchcliffe and Dix and holmes but right. for me it works brilliantly and it gets darker and darker as uh hinchcliffe gets more and more established in his role as producer and holmes as script editor but the optimism like in the arkham space it's uh of humanity and just with uh uh, Noah sacrificing himself to save right. save humanity. That kind of belief in humanity, belief in people doing the right thing, even when they're possessed by aliens. Uh, that hopefulness in Doctor Who is something I really uh, value and like. And it's, I think throughout season 12, it's really engaging and my happy place in Doctor Who. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I mean, we'll maybe talk about this next week. It's the following season that's really my mm-hmm. my top season. Um, but yeah, no, this is. I mean, this is a absolute. I mean, this whole run of like early, you know, the first two, three, four years of Baker is like just unbeatable. Mm-hmm. And you know, sadly, it also coincided with you know my kind of peak impressionability in terms of watching <laughs> TV. Um, so I am no, I am unable to discern whether it's um this is a four years of unbeatable television because it's four years of unbeatable television or it's because i it's four years of me being an impressionable preteen yeah yeah i imprinted very heavily on the tom baker years and yeah yeah and it's hard in retrospect to go is this great television or is this great television for 12 year old me (laughs) yeah who knows who knows anymore Mm mm-hmm and it doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it doesn't matter. All we can do is our, be our best and most authentic selves. Yes. Brilliant. It's, it's a great time of Doctor Who. And thank you for listening to episode 160 of the Metabulous 2 podcast. I have been traveling back to 1975 with Ben. And I have been holed up in my scientific elite bunker <laughs> developing a new master race of evil mutants. Uh, with David. You know, that's the plot line of Robot and Genesis of the Daleks. There you go. Exactly. That's true. That's true. Bunkers. Bunkers. Scientific Elite. Uh-huh. There it is. All, so what it's all it's about. All, all season 12. Scientific Elite gone awry. The scientific Elite gone awry. <laughs> right. Well, thank you for listening. Farewell. And uh, until next week, season 13. Goodbye.
You're not fit yet. Not fit? I'm the doctor. No, doctor. I'm the doctor, and I say that you're not fit. You may be a doctor, but I'm the doctor. The definite article, you might say.